Welcome to another episode from 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, which is a proud member of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network. Today's story takes place here at 1001 Classic Stories and Tales, with Charles Dickens' recounting of the actual wreck of the gold-laden ship Royal Charter at Melfry on the coast of the tiny island of Anglesey in Wales in 1859. Wales has many stories to tell, with castles and Roman fortifications, ancient graveyards, and legends going back to ancient times. The little island of Anglesey, on the north tip of Wales, is about 20 miles long and has very rocky coastlines. It is the only part of Wales which is not mountainous. For a moment, put yourself in this small town as a huge disaster unfolds, and hundreds of bodies are pulled from the sea over a course of days and weeks and laid on your church floor. There's no 911, no nearby hospital, no emergency crews. Only you and the people around you can identify the dead and somehow contact the relatives and then both greet those arriving relatives and return letters to the relatives that can't make the trip, doing your best to prevent them with as much grief as possible while confirming their worst fears. It's beyond the scope of the present-day imagination. This is the story. Never had I seen a year going out or going on under quieter circumstances. 1859 had but another day to live, and truly its end was peace on that seashore that morning. So settled and orderly was everything seaward, in the bright light of the sun and under the transparent shadows of the clouds, that it was hard to imagine the bay otherwise, for years past or to come, than it was that very day, the tug steamer lying a little off the shore, the lighter lying still nearer to the shore, the boat alongside the lighter, the regularly turning windlass aboard the lighter, the methodical figures at work, all slowly and regularly heaving up and down with the breathing of the sea, all seemed as much a part of the nature of the place as the tide itself. The tide was on the flow, and had been for some two hours and a half. There was a slight obstruction in the sea within a few yards of my feet, as if the stump of a tree, with earth enough about it to keep it from lying horizontally on the water. And as I stood upon the beach and observed it dimpling the light swell that was coming in, I cast a stone over it. So orderly, so quiet, so regular, the rising and falling of the tug steamer, the lighter, and the boat, the turning of the windlass, the coming in of the tide, that I myself seemed, to my own thinking, anything but new to the spot. Yet I had never seen it in my life a minute before and had traversed two hundred miles to get at it. That very morning I'd come bowling down and struggling up hill country roads, looking back at snowy summits, meeting courteous peasants well-to-do, driving fat pigs and cattle to market, noting the neat and thrifty dwellings with their unusual quantity of clean white linen drying on the bushes having windy weather suggested by every cotter's little rick, with its thatch straw-ridged and extra straw-ridged into overlapping compartments like the back of a rhinoceros. Had I not given a lift of fourteen miles to the coast guardsman, Kit and all, who was coming to his spell of duty there, and had we not just now parted company? So it was, but the journey seemed to glide down into the placid sea with other chafe and trouble, and for the moment, Nothing was so calmly and monotonously real under the sunlight 
as the gentle rising and falling of the water with its freight, the regular turning of the windlass aboard the lighter, and the slight obstruction so very near my feet. O oh, reader, haply turning this page by the fireside at home, and hearing the night wind rumble in the chimney, that slight obstruction was the uppermost fragment of the wreck of the Royal Charter, Australian trader and passenger ship, homeward bound, that struck here on the terrible morning of the 26th of this October, broke into three parts, went down with her treasure of at least 500 human lives, and has never stirred since, from which point, or from which, she drove ashore, stern foremost, on which side, or on which, she passed the little island in the bay, for ages henceforth to be aground certain yards outside her. These are rendered bootless questions by the darkness of that night and the darkness of death. Here she went down. Even as I stood on the beach with the words, Here she went down in my ears, a diver in his grotesque dress dipped heavily over the side of the boat alongside the lighter and dropped to the bottom. On the shore by the water's edge was a rough tent made of fragments of wreck, where other divers and workmen sheltered themselves, and where they had kept Christmas Day with rum and roast beef to the destruction of their frail chimney. Cast up among the stones and boulders of the beach were great spars of the lost vessel, and masses of iron twisted by the fury of the sea into the strangest forms. The timber was already bleached and iron-rusted, and even these objects did no violence to the prevailing air the whole scene wore of having been exactly the same for years and years. Yet only two short months had gone, since a man living on the nearest hilltop overlooking the sea, being blown out of bed at about daybreak by the wind that had begun to strip his roof off, and getting upon a ladder with his nearest neighbor to construct some temporary device for keeping his house over his head, saw from the ladder's elevation as he looked down by chance towards the shore some dark, troubled object close in with the land, and he and the other descending to the beach and finding the sea mercilessly beating over a great broken ship had clambered up the stony ways like staircases without stairs, on which the wild village hangs in little clusters as fruit hangs on boughs, and had given the alarm. And so, over the hill slopes and past the waterfall and down the gullies where the land drains off into the ocean, the scattered quarrymen and fishermen inhabiting that part of Wales had come running to the dismal sight, their clergymen among them. And as they stood in the leaden morning, stricken with pity, leaning hard against the wind, their breath and vision often failing as the sleet and spray rushed at them from the ever-forming and dissolving mountains of sea, and as the wool which was a part of the vessel's cargo blew in with the salt foam and remained upon the land when the foam melted, they saw the ship's lifeboat put off from one of the heaps of wreck, and first there were three men in her, and in a moment she capsized, and there were but two, and again she was struck by a vast mass of water, and there was but one, and again she was thrown bottom upward, and that one, with his arms stuck through the broken planks and waving as if for the help that could never reach him, went down into the deep. It was the clergyman himself from whom I heard this while I stood on the shore looking in his kind, wholesome face as it turned to the spot where the boat had been. The divers were down then and busy. They were lifting today the gold found yesterday, 
some five and twenty thousand pounds of three hundred and fifty thousand pounds worth of gold, three hundred thousand pounds worth in round numbers, was at that time recovered. The great bulk of the remainder was surely and steadily coming up. Some loss of sovereigns there would be, of course. Indeed, at first sovereigns had drifted in with the sand and been scattered far and wide over the beach like seashells, but most other golden treasure would be found. As it was brought up, it went aboard the tug steamer, where good account was taken of it. So tremendous had the force of the sea been when it broke the ship that it had beaten one great ingot of gold deep into a strong and heavy piece of her solid iron work, in which, also, several loose sovereigns that the ingot had swept in before it had been found, as firmly embedded as though the iron had been liquid when they were forced there. It had been remarked of such bodies come ashore too, as had been seen by scientific men, that they had been stunned to death and not suffocated. Observation, both of the internal charge that had observation, both of the internal chains that had been wrought in them, and of their external expression, showed death to have been thus merciful and easy. The report was brought while I was holding such discourse on the beach that no more bodies had come ashore since last night. It began to be very doubtful whether many more would be thrown up until the northeast winds of the early spring set in. Moreover, a great number of the passengers, and particularly the second-class women passengers, were known to have been in the middle of the ship when she parted, and thus the collapsing wreck would have fallen upon them after yawning open. A diver made known even then that he had come upon the body of a man and had sought to release it from a great superincumbent weight, but that, finding that he could not do so without mutilating the remains, he had left it where it was. It was the kind and wholesome face I have made mention of as being then beside me that I had purposed to myself to see when I left home for Wales. I had heard of that clergyman as having buried many scores of shipwrecked people, of his having opened his house and heart to their agonized friends, of his having used a most sweet and patient diligence for weeks and weeks in the performance of the forlornest offices that man can render to his kind, of his having most tenderly and thoroughly devoted himself to the dead and to those who were sorrowing for the dead. I had said to myself, in the Christmas season of the year, I should like to see that man, and he had swung the gate of his little garden in coming out to meet me not half an hour ago. So cheerful of spirit and guiltless of affectation as true practical Christianity ever is. I read more of the New Testament in the fresh frank face going up the village beside me in five minutes than I have read in discourses all my life. I heard more of the sacred book in the cordial voice that had nothing to say about its owner than in all the would-be celestial pairs of bellows that have ever blown conceit at me. We climbed towards the little church at a cheery pace among the loose stones, the deep mud, the wet coarse grass, the outlying water, and other obstructions from which frost and snow had lately thawed. It was a mistake, my friend was glad to tell me on the way, to suppose that the peasantry had shown any superstitious avoidance of the drowned. On the whole, they had done very well and had assisted readily. Ten shillings had been paid for the bringing of each body up to the church, but the way was steep, and a horse and cart in which it was wrapped in sheet were necessary, and three or four men, and all things considered, 
it was not a great price. The people were none the richer for the wreck, for it was the season of the herring shoal, and who could cast nets for fish and find dead men and women in the draft? He had the church keys in his hand and opened the churchyard gate and opened the church door, and we went in. It's a little church of great antiquity. There's reason to believe that some church has occupied the spot these thousand years or more. The pulpit was gone, and other things usually belonging to the church were gone, owing to its living congregation having deserted it for the neighboring schoolroom and yielded it up to the dead. The very commandments had been shouldered out of their places in the bringing in of the dead. The black wooden tables on which they were painted were askew, and on the stone pavement below them, and on the stone pavement all over the church, were the marks and stains where the drowned had been laid down. The eye, with little or no aid from the imagination, could yet see how the bodies had been turned, and where the head had been, and where the feet. Some faded traces of the wreck of the Australian ship may be discernible on the stone pavement of this little church, hundreds of years hence, when the digging for gold in Australia shall have long and long seized out of the land. Forty-four shipwrecked men and women lay here at one time, awaiting burial. Here, with weeping and wailing in every room of his house, my companion worked alone for hours, solemnly surrounded by eyes that could not see him and by lips that could not speak to him, patiently examining the tattered clothing, cutting off buttons, hair, marks from linen, anything that might lead to subsequent identification, studying faces, looking for a scar, a bent finger, a crooked toe, comparing letters sent to him with the ruin about him. My dearest brother had bright gray eyes and a pleasant smile, one sister wrote. Oh, poor sister, well for you to be far from here and keep that as your last remembrance of him. The ladies of the clergyman's family, his wife and two sisters-in-law, came in among the bodies often. It grew to be the business of their lives to do so. Any new arrival of a bereaved woman would stimulate their pity to compare the description brought with the dread realities. Sometimes they would go back able to say, I have found him, or I think she lies there. Perhaps the mourner, unable to bear the sight of all that lay in the church, would be led in blindfold. Conducted to the spot with many compassionate words and encouraged a look, she would say with a piercing cry, This is my boy, and drop insensible on the insensible figure. He soon observed that in some cases of women, the identification of persons, though complete, was quite at variance with the marks upon the linen. This led him to notice that even the marks upon the linen were sometimes inconsistent with one another, and thus he came to understand that they had dressed in great haste and agitation, and that their clothes had become mixed together. The identification of men by their dress was rendered extremely difficult in consequence of a large proportion of them being dressed alike, in clothes of one kind, that is to say, supplied by slop sellers and outfitters, and not made by single garments, but by hundreds. Many of the men were bringing over parrots, and had receipts upon them for the price of the birds. Others had bills of exchange in their pockets or in belts. Some of these documents, carefully unwrinkled and dried, were little less fresh in appearance that day than the present page will be under ordinary circumstances, after having been opened three or four times. In that lonely place, it had not been easy to obtain even such common commodities in towns as ordinary disinfectants. Pitch had been burnt in the church, 
as the readiest thing at hand, and the frying pan in which it had bubbled over a brazier of coals was still there, with its ashes. Hard by the communion table were some boots that had been taken off the drowned and preserved, a gold digger's boot cut down the leg for its removal, a trodden-down man's ankle boot with buff-cloth top, and others soaked and sandy, weedy and salt. From the church we passed out into the churchyard. Here there lay, at that time, 145 bodies that had come ashore from the wreck. He had buried them, when not identified, in graves containing four each. He had numbered each body in a register describing it, and had placed a corresponding number on each coffin and over each grave. Identified bodies he had buried singly, in private graves, in another part of the churchyard. There were many, many letters, all heart-rending. It was some time before I could sever myself from the many interesting papers on the table, and then I broke bread and drank wine with the kind family before I left them. As I brought the Coast Guard down, so I took the postman back, with his leathern wallet, walking-stick bugle, and terrier dog. Many a heartbroken letter had he brought to the rectory house within two months many. A painstaking answer had he always carried back. As I rode along, I thought of the many people, inhabitants of this mother country, who would make pilgrimages to the little churchyard in the years to come. I thought of the many people in Australia who would have an interest in such a shipwreck and would find their way here when they visit the old world. I thought of the writers of all the wreck of letters that I had left upon the table there, and I resolved to place this little record where it stands. Convocations, conferences, dioceses and epistles, and the like, will do a great deal for religion, I dare say, and heaven send they may. But I doubt if they will ever do their master's service half so well, in all the time they last, as the heavens have seen it done in this bleak spot upon the rugged coast of Wales. Had I lost the friend of my life in the wreck of the royal charter, had I lost my betrothed, the more than friend of my life, had I lost my maiden daughter, had I lost my hopeful boy, had I lost my little child, I would kiss the hands that worked so busily and gently in the church and say, none better could have touched the form, though it had lain at home. I could be sure of it. I could be thankful for it. I could be content to leave the grave near the house the good family pass in and out of every day, undisturbed in the little churchyard where so many are so strangely brought together. This marks the end of the Dickens story, but for those of you uncommercial travelers who may want to visit, St. Galgos Church stands just southwest of the village of Lanalgo in Anglesey, Wales. There's been a church on the site since the 6th or early 7th century, making it one of the oldest Christian sites in Anglesey. Some restoration and enlargement took place during the 19th century. 140 of the shipwrecked victims are buried in the churchyard. The church is still used for worship by the church in Wales as one of the four churches in a combined parish. There's a regular pattern of services in English and in Welsh. St. Galgos is a grade two listed building a national designation given to buildings of special interest, which warrant every effort being made to preserve them. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Be sure to join us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries for the story of the shipwreck, 
the efforts to save the passengers and crew that day, and the legends of gold that have been driving treasure hunters to the Anglesey beaches in Wales for over 150 years. You have no idea how much I appreciate your being with us at our 1001 shows. All I can do is say thank you, which I try to do every episode. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.